This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. I went down by the wall to help grab people over. I was looking for a woman I had hoped could make it to the wall, but I couldn't find her. There was chaos. We were dragging people through the gates. Marine guards were on the walls with their rifles, battering people trying to get over. We would pull one Vietnamese over, but the child of that Vietnamese would be left behind. It was the most horrible circumstance. From Foreign Policy, welcome back to I Spy. On each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On this episode, we return to Frank Snapp, who was a CIA analyst based in Saigon during the Vietnam War. This is a two-part story, so if you haven't heard episode seven yet, you should start there and come back to us. In April of 1975, SNEP discovered that North Vietnamese forces were preparing a large-scale attack on Saigon. SNEP wrote reports about the coming offensive based on information from his best source, a communist defector named T.U. Hackle. But the higher-ups refused to believe it. When the attack began later that month, Americans conducted a frenzied evacuation, leaving behind many Vietnamese allies and marking a humiliating end to the war. This is the rest of SNEP's story about the fall of Saigon. During those four days that remained to us, we were facing Armageddon. On the night of April 27th, the communists lobbed five rockets into the center of Saigon, and one of them ignited a firestorm. And that, to me, signaled that the game was up, that Tu's departure was useless. There was chaos in the boarding areas. There were makeshift efforts to get people out. The immigration papers, the visa forms, the laissez-faire forms that enabled Americans to claim Vietnamese as dependents had been totally counterfeited so that you could take any Vietnamese out. You didn't have to prove that you were married to them. Anybody and his mother could get out if they could get some American to shoehorn them into a departure line. The following day, South Vietnamese Assembly got together and decided that afternoon they would vote into office the neutralists who everybody thought, except me, would satisfy the communists. Holgar was convinced the communists were standing down and he sent me and a colleague, agency colleague, out to the perimeters of Saigon. He said, look for communist forces to see if they're standing put. My friend and I headed for the perimeter of Saigon up the Vienna Highway. And my pal and I were pinned down by hostile fire. And we hastily beat a retreat to the embassy to let Polgar know that there was no stand down 
the enemy was on the move. That afternoon, roughly six aircraft piloted by the North Vietnamese, captured aircraft, swooped in on Tantanut, bombed the airfield. That night, in the pre-dawn hours, communist artillery and rockets began raining in on Tansanut Air Base, obliterating what was left of the, the runways. So by that final night in Saigon, all the signs of disaster were apparent to all. No negotiations. We were being subjected to incoming on a massive basis. The following morning, Martin insisted on going out to the freeways to see if they could be used for a fixed wing aircraft or whether or not we would have to call in the helicopters. He was convinced we had to call in the helicopters. I had received a report that morning in the embassy and it indicated that the communists were going to shell the center of Saigon at 6 p.m. that afternoon if we weren't all gone. Martin had told me that I was to be part of a 50-man stay-behind contingent in the event we had to evacuate, that the embassy would keep 50 people behind because he still believed that there would be an independent South Vietnam somehow, even surviving a final attack. When I got that message that the communists were going to shell the center of Saigon, it wasn't Martin who told me I was to leave. Henry Kissinger sent word from Washington and he'd seen the same message. He ordered Martin to clear the embassy of everybody within the next few hours. And so the helicopter evacuation all went into effect. That morning, these small Hueys, which were run by Air America Airline, the CIA's airline, they began ferrying people out to the fleet. What was happening in the embassy was just madness. We had not adequately prepared that embassy for an evacuation because we thought it was to be simply a collection point. That quickly broke down. Then there was chaos in the city. The soldiers were casting off their uniforms. There were boots and shoes all over the streets. It was the most surreal scene you could imagine. I went to the CIA operations room on the sixth floor. We were being flooded with radio messages coming in over the CIA's network. There were Vietnamese agents and operatives and friends screaming for help. Get us, I'm waiting at the CIA hotel. I'm waiting at this drop point, that drop point, and we couldn't get there. One of my colleagues came in and said, Frank, for Christ's sake, where's Polgar? What are you doing? I said, I'm the only one here. Polgar was down by the wall trying to get people over because his girlfriend had not made it into the embassy with him that morning. At one point, a 
helicopter pilot I knew, O.B. Harnage, came in and I said, you got to go to my building, my rooftop, and pick up Polgar's people. And he said, Frank, I can't get in there. The people have already overrun your building. I said, well, go to the deputy station chief's house, his apartment complex, pick up Polgar's people there. Well, there was much toing and froing, but finally, O.B. Harnage flew that helicopter to that rooftop, thinking he was going to pick up Polgar's girlfriend. He got to that rooftop. The UPI photographer snapped that famous photo of O.B. and that helicopter taking on passengers. And Harnage was armed to the teeth. He was taking ground fire when he was on that roof. There were stragglers who were crazed. During that morning and early afternoon, I was sort of the traffic controller in the CIA operations room. From time to time, I went down by the wall to help grab people over. I was looking for a woman I had hoped could make it to the wall, but I couldn't find her. There was chaos. We were dragging people through the gates. Marine guards were on the walls with their rifles, battering people trying to get over. We would pull one Vietnamese over, but the child of that Vietnamese would be left behind. It was the most horrible circumstance. All during that morning, there were certain Vietnamese bigwigs showing up, pushing and shoving their way through the crowd. We'd open the gate, let them come in, push everybody else back. President Tu's national security advisor, a guy who looked like kumquat on stilts. He was so fat, thin legs. He shows up, he wants out. I was amazed he didn't bring any money with him. It was madness. The contractors within the embassy grounds, they had their girlfriends with them and under the dresses of the girlfriends were packed thousands of dollars. People trying to get money out of the country. The embassy staff had $2 million in funds that we were to hand out to Vietnamese as severance salaries. They had to burn most of that money. So we were taking care of that. In the operations room, the whole operation room was trembling. Bam, 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 bam because we were using the incinerators on the roof to destroy documents that we had failed to destroy, classified mountains of classified material. We couldn't get them all in the incinerators. There was black smoke wafting all over the courtyard and there was ash on all the cars that still remained. We cleared the main parking lot, but there were still some Jeeps around. The big problem was with the shredded documents. When even the small choppers from Air America came in and out, and the, the small choppers were using the roof of the embassy as a landing pad. As they came in and out, the downdraft ripped open bags of classified shredded trash, blowing them all over the trees and the embassy grounds. And the communists would later come in with scotch tape, put them together, and they were able to reconstruct major secret documents. Periodically, I went down to Martin's office 
And there were a bunch of journalists gathered there. There was his staff, his wife showed up. I was horrified, but the wife had not evacuated. In his office, he had his little dog, Mitnoy. He hadn't evacuated anything. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Like most people, Pod Save America co-host Tommy Vitor thought foreign policy was boring and complicated until he got the education of a lifetime working for Barack Obama's National Security Council. It was a crash course that taught him two things. Anyone can understand these issues and we all have an obligation to try. That's why he started Pod Save the World, a weekly podcast from Crooked Media that breaks down international news and foreign policy developments, but doesn't feel like homework. Each week, he and former Deputy National Security Advisor and co-host Ben Rhodes walk you through the latest developments with a variety of experts. Count on hearing behind-the-scenes stories, funny anecdotes, and maybe a few F-bombs along the way. New episodes of Pod Save the World drop every Wednesday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to I Spy. We return to Frank Snap, a CIA analyst based in Saigon, in the final weeks of the Vietnam War. As the day wore on, finally the big choppers began arriving. They began landing in the courtyard. Some of them came in and used the roof. And we had had to cut down at the last minute guy wires so the choppers could come in. There was a tamarind tree in the center of the embassy courtyard. To the last minute, Martin refused to let us cut it down because he thought the felling of that tamarind tree would signal to everybody that America was giving up. And he wasn't going to send that signal to anybody. So we had neglected to the last minute to cut that tree down. That's how crazy it was. I mean, it was just madness. And I was staggering tired. I hadn't had a good night's sleep in two months. I was beaten. I was despairing. I made it my mission that morning to get however many of our Vietnamese employees into the embassy. So we had 6,000 high-risk Vietnamese employees, including their family members, that was the total group, that we viewed as key intelligence personnel. They hadn't been evacuated. We managed to send some Vietnamese to the Duck Hotel, which was a secret hotel right next to the presidential palace. We thought we could evacuate some of our key Vietnamese from that place. The place was overrun. And the American CIA officer there in charge of organizing evacuation efforts escaped by himself, leaving Vietnamese behind. So late that afternoon, Vietnamese had filled every embassy corridor. They had been moved in so that they could more quickly be shuttled to the roof to get on a chopper leaving from the rooftop pad. I got to tell you, one Vietnamese had a pig in his arms inside the embassy. 
the air conditioning system had broken down. The stairwells were jammed with people. The elevator was broken. There was no water. We were fearful that anyone could have a weapon or a hand grenade and blow us up. And the Marine guards were trying to keep order. And some people in the CIA operations room and Polgar's office where I was had broken out booze and they were drinking. I didn't have a drop of it because I was so tired. I didn't think I could survive even as I was. And I was afraid if one drop of booze would put me on the floor. About two days before the end, a wonderful Vietnamese woman I had known during my first tour and had had a brief fling with upon my return to Saigon in late 1972 after an interim tour in Washington. I'd lost touch with her. She had left. She had gone. Well, these last days before the end, she showed up and she had a baby in tow. And the baby was very ill, in terrible shape. And she had not been able to arrange an evacuation because the baby was so sick that she had to keep going to the Graal Hospital, that was the French hospital, to take care of the kid. Anyway, she shows up very close to the end and she says, I need help getting out of the country. She said first that the kid belonged to a friend of hers that had an American boyfriend. And then she said it was a kid by a, her own American boyfriend. And finally, she wound up as if I needed encouragement to get her out. She said, no, this is your kid. And uh, I was staggering tired. I didn't know how to react. And many Vietnamese women were claiming to have American children so that they could they could get visas and immigration papers that would allow them to get to the United States. And she said to me, if you don't get me out, I will kill myself and this child. I was a fast moving target. I was barely able to do what I was supposed to do. And the day before the end, this Vietnamese woman whose name was Mai Lee called the watch officer in the operations room and she left a message. She said something to the effect, I would have expected more from you. The last day, a police officer who knew that I knew her came over the embassy wall and he said that Miley had killed herself and the kid. It tears at uh, my soul. Polgar came to me around 9.15 on the last day of the war. And he said, we're going to get out right now. Kissinger has said, all CIA leave, because he was fearful that we would be captured. And people like me, we weren't particularly special, but we knew all the secrets. So they ordered the remainder of us, 17 CIA officers, to head for the roof and to leave. I emerged onto the roof of the embassy and it was like a scene out of Hieronymus Bosch. 
There were flashing lights. I looked over the edge of the parapet at the streets below and they were mobbed by thousands of people. North Vietnamese tanks were converging on Saigon. The Marine guards who had ushered us upstairs cleared the decks and I climbed onto the helicopter with the 17 other officers and the helicopter began trembling and it lifted up. It veered a little and I could see the air base out towards Benoit. It was the final air base before you got to Saigon. And it was going up in miniature atomic explosions. The communists had hit it. it looked like atomic explosions. There were mushroom clouds over it. We began heading towards the coast and the communists were firing and somebody in the helicopter screamed, we're taking fire, we're gonna go down. Began chattering, chattering the machine as it gained altitude and we managed to beat the, the incoming and make it to the coast. And then 25 or 30 minutes later, we spotted the evacuation fleet and we began descending into the USS Denver. And I fell out of that helicopter, I could, barely walk. I was on the evacuation fleet for about five days. Immediately afterwards, I flew to Bangkok to try to organize rat lines back into Vietnam that we could use to move people out, people we left behind. I got no support from CIA headquarters. I was able to generate some intelligence by debriefing people coming out. And I learned that people we left behind in the CIA hotel had been machine gunned to death. The great agent T.U. Hackle did not survive the end of the war. I didn't know this when I met with him on April 17th, two weeks before the end. But he had been directed to stay on, to report on events afterwards. The day after Americans left Saigon, T.U. Hackle was tracked down and arrested by security cadre for the North Vietnamese. They knew by then all about him because a CAA officer had been captured up country just about the time I was meeting with T.U. Hackle in mid-April. The CIA officer under torture and interrogation had given away all the details of the Hackle case to the communists. A Vietnamese case officer who had worked with Hackle likewise was captured and gave away the secrets. So they knew about him on the day after the fall of Saigon, they captured him, threw him in prison in Saigon and would have interrogated him to death. T.U. Hackle beat him to it. He hung himself with his belt. Frank Snepp spent eight years in the CIA, 
He wrote about his experience in Vietnam in the book Decent Interval. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. Our iSpy team includes Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. iSpy at foreignpolicy.com. iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in not just espionage, but smart geopolitical news and analysis from Washington and around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners can get a 10% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code PODCAST at checkout. This is our last episode of the season. We'll be back soon with more spy stories. I'm Margot Martindale.